It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Questions continue to swirl around the current U.S. Supreme Court. What do the court's most recent decisions on affirmative action, voting rights, and the Second Amendment tell us about future rulings? There are justices who are institutionalists and who are thinking about in the long term what's best for the court to kind of retain its power and to retain its central position. And then there are what um, Leah Littman's referring to as the only live once justices, the YOLO court justices, who are grabbing for as much right now given how these arguments play out right now. The rulings from the court's latest term have a major impact on millions of Americans, but we almost certainly haven't heard the last word on these contentious legal issues. So what comes next? Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from the 2023 Aspen Ideas Festival. Three leaders in constitutional law break down the arguments behind the court's decisions and provide historical context. Georgetown University professor Neil Katyal, Stanford professor Pam Carlin, and Clark Neely of the Cato Institute come together to unpack the complex opinions. Law professor and journalist Jeffrey Rosen moderates the conversation. Here's Rosen. Let's jump right in with the affirmative action decision. The court, by a 6-3 to three vote, has held that uh, the affirmative action programs of Harvard and the University of North Carolina violate the Equal Protection Clause. The court uh, repudiated the holdings of the Bakke and Gruder cases, which had held that educational diversity is a compelling interest. And the court said that the only way to justify racial classifications under the Equal Protection Clause are to show that you're remedying identifiable race discrimination in the past or you're avoiding an emergency in the future. And because educational diversity is neither of those things, it can no longer be considered a compelling interest. Clark, why don't you lead us off? Describe the majority opinion's reasoning uh, and also that of th those of the concurring justices who argue that the Equal Protection Clause is colorblind. What did, what did the majority hold and, and do you agree with it? I sympathize, kid. This is a really difficult, <laughs> <laughs> tough... Uh... It, was, it was my introduction that meant <laughs> a very sensible response, but... This is a tough decision to make sense of. Um, you know, even the, the, there's a disagreement between the Chief Justice who wrote the majority opinion and Justice Thomas who wrote a concurrence about whether they did or didn't overrule uh, prior precedent, including particularly the Grutter case from uh, University of Michigan on the question of whether uh, achieving uh, diversity on campus is a sufficiently compelling governmental interest. So it's really uh, going to require a, a deep dive on these lengthy opinions. I forget what the page count is. 239. 239. I knew Pam would know for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a lot to to digest, and I'm just going to be really honest with you, I haven't had time, but uh, I think I can still, you know, sort of try to hit the highlights. And, and what it comes down to is this. I think there are three uh, questions that, that these cases present. The first is whether it's ever permissible um, to use race in deciding whether to admit a student to uh, either a public university like the University of North Carolina or a private uh, university that receives federal funds under Title VI, uh, or I'm sorry, that is controlled by Title VI of the 64 Civil Rights Act. And Harvard does take federal money. Um, so while the Constitution doesn't forbid Harvard from using race, um, the argument is that uh, 
as a recipient of federal funds, they have a, a statutory obligation to essentially be colorblind, or at least to, to, to stay within the parameters of however much race the Supreme Court says a university is allowed to use. So that's the first question, can you take race into account? Second question is, if so, to what extent? Um, the, the argument that Harvard made in court essentially was, look, it's just a very, it's a small part of their decision. We have a holistic approach, we take into consideration a tremendous number of uh, factors, and race is really just one of those. Uh, and then third is a more practical question, namely, what is the university really doing. And there was actually a lengthy trial, uh, a bench trial, meaning a trial in front of a judge in the Harvard case um, that produced a significant body of evidence um, that was not prior to that, had not been made public um, about how Harvard's admission process actually worked. And one of the most difficult things, I think, for uh, Harvard to sort of contextualize, I was about to say run away from, but I don't want to be pejorative yet, um, was that the um, admissions policy at Harvard uh, had a significant impact on uh, applicants of, of Asian uh, descent. Uh, my wife is half Japanese, my kids therefore are quarter Japanese, and so this is something, you know, an issue of particular concern in my household. And there was, uh, I think, rather compelling empirical evidence um, that Asian students had to perform substantially better across a whole variety of measures in order to have a chance of being admitted uh, to Harvard. There was further evidence that if Harvard had a strictly uh, kind of colorblind approach to admissions, that something like 46% of the student body at Harvard would be Asian. Uh, and the idea that even if, for example, we, we, we say that it's permissible for a university to take race into account, perhaps even to try to remedy past dis, uh, discrimination, which is a, uh, something that featured heavily in both Justice Sotomayor's um, and Justice uh, Jackson's uh, dissents, um, it, it, what, what this case, to me at least, brought forth was that um, that's not always cost-free. And so if one group is going to receive a preference, which Harvard clearly was doing for African-Americans and uh, people of Hispanic descent, then other ethnicities may end up getting short shrift. And it's pretty clear at Harvard that Asians were, in fact, getting uh, short shrift. And so those are really the three questions that I think are in play uh, in this case. Can uh, a public or publicly funded uh, academic institution take race into account? If so, to what extent? And then third, what are they really doing? Put aside what they say they're doing, what are they really doing? Going forward, I think it's clear that universities will be able to continue to take race into account to some extent. Chief Justice Roberts was very clear that applicants will be able to write about their experience in their essays, for example, what it, you know, what it has meant to me to be a member, not me, but what it has meant to a hypothetical applicant to be a member of a particular ethnicity, um, what hurdles we've had to overcome as a result, and that that would be a permissible way going forward uh, for universities to, to take race into consideration to at least some extent. The devil is really, I think, going to be in the details in terms of how the schools respond and what the courts say about how they've responded. Uh, th thank you so much for setting up so well. Pam, uh, there is a practical question about how race can be used moving forward. And as Clark said, uh, Chief Justice Roberts uh, observed that universities can continue to encourage students to write about race on their essays as long as they tie that to particular challenges or adversity that they've overcome. And there was one other exception saying that the military could continue to take race into account. In practice, what do you think the effect of the decision will be and how will affirmative action be changed at universities? So um, I should say that I'm speaking here in my personal capacity because when I was at the Department of Justice in the Civil Rights Division, I worked on DOJ's amicus brief in the Harvard and North Carolina cases. Um, I, I think 
you know, an affirmative action program done right can survive the chief justice's opinion because what he says there is that uh, in, rather than just looking at whether someone checked a box saying that he was Latino or she was African American, you should look at how the person explains how their race goes to the qualities that make them an attractive applicant for the school. And I'll just say parenthetically along the lines of something that Clark said, as somebody who has always tested extraordinarily well, test scores are not everything mm -hmm. in deciding whom to let in. At Stanford, we reject a number of people with much higher test scores um, than the people we let in, in part because we are looking for a well-rounded class of people who've done interesting things and test scores are not everything. So uh, that means that schools will have to look more carefully. And the one concern that I have about this in the short run is for students who are upper middle class uh, or who go to, who have gotten scholarships to go to excellent private schools or the like, they will have guidance counselors who will be able to tell them how to write the kind of essay that will talk about their experiences in a way that will um, help to make them an attractive applicant. For students who are going to underfunded public schools in the middle of nowhere with a ratio of students to guidance counselors of 400 or 600 to one, they are not going to understand how this new process works. And so they are less likely to write the kinds of essays that will make them attractive candidates uh, under this kind of new regime. So that's, that's the first piece of this. The second thing to look at, though, is there are cases coming down the pike that the court didn't address in its opinion today that are worth understanding. And the, the next one up, I think, is going to be the Thomas Jefferson case. Um, for those of you who are not from the Washington, D.C. area but are from the New York area, Thomas Jefferson is the Bronx science of uh, the, the D.C. metro area. It's a, school, it's, a, it's a math and science high school. It's incredibly selective. It's a public school. And they changed their admissions policies recently to get rid of a test that had a huge disparate impact on black and Latino applicants and to use a race-blind process. And that race-blind process has been challenged because the reason they adopted it was to increase the diversity, racial diversity in the school. And if that case goes to the Supreme Court and is decided, then we're in a very different, I think, very different world going forward, talking about what schools can do uh, to make their classrooms diverse. I'm so glad you flagged that crucially important case for our audience and as Pam Carlin suggests, the big question moving forward is whether any race consciousness is unconstitutional and a violation of federal law, even if it results in the adoption of facially neutral policies. Neil, help us think through the really important litigation on the horizon. Pam suggested a gap between the majority opinion and that of Justices Thomas and Gorsuch. Justice Gorsuch essentially suggested that the text of Title VI and Title VII a federal law require total colorblindness. If, if his view got a majority, would that mean that any race conscious corporate recruiting would violate federal law? And what kind of division do you see among the justices 
on this crucial question of how much race consciousness is permissible moving forward. Uh, thank you. It's so great to be here with all of you again. Uh, I think I've done this now for about eight or nine years, and I love being here, and I love this audience. So thank you. Um, I, like Pam, am speaking personally. I represent, like, everyone in this space. So, um, so I'm uh, really very much talking personally um, here. Uh, my reaction to the affirmative action decisions is that they were not nearly as bad as I thought they would be, that they left a lot of room open. So Pam isolates one important thing, the last two paragraphs of the Chief Chief Justice's opinion say, if a applicant self-identifies on the basis of race and explains why her experience matters and what she will bring to the university, that's okay. Well, that's what, you know, at least a well-constructed affirmative action program will be able to do. Pam's 100% right that this is going to benefit, you know, people who have more sophisticated counseling. I mean, it's kind of like how Donald Trump was good for lawyers. The Supreme Court's good for guidance counselors. Um, you know, and, uh, uh, you, you know, and that does really concern me. Um, but, but nonetheless, I do think it's possible for universities to maintain uh, a diversity based program that's, that's well-crafted. Um, and I think the military exception, the language about that helps as well. There's this really hard question which Pam is flagging, which all universities are thinking about now, which is, what if we do something that's a proxy for affirmative action in a race-conscious program? So say we look at Pell Grants and, you know, or some sort of socioeconomic status, and will that be challenged as just doing affirmative action through the back door? Absolutely, it's going to be challenged. This opinion doesn't give us very much guidance on it. Pam's again 100% right that the Thomas Jefferson case would, um, but I don't anticipate the Supreme Court to take another case in this space for a little while. Typically, when the Supreme Court decides a case, then the other cases that raise similar or even adjacent issues, they just throw back to the lower courts for additional percolation. Um, and here, not only did they decide a big case, they overruled or semi-overruled or partially overruled or whatever you want to call it, Chief, Mr. Chief Justice, uh, the old cases of Grutter and Bakke. And so I do expect a lot of this litigation to return to the lower courts. So there will be fights at the K through 12 level. There'll be fights in the universities. And my last point, as Jeff said, is there will be fights in the corporate setting as well. Uh, that is, this decision has implications for how corporations think about their DEI programs, their commitments to affirmative action and the like. The Supreme Court in two cases, Johnson and Weber, said that those uh, those programs exist on a somewhat different footing. They're not diversity-based affirmative action. They're designed to compensate for past wrongs. And so uh, there are strong arguments for why corporations can still continue to do this, but Justice Gorsuch flagged the argument on the other side. Great. Well, thank you for introducing the crucial questions that the affirmative action cases opens up. I do want to encourage you to read the opinions, the majority opinion, the concurrences, and the dissents. This is part of your education as citizens, and you'll see a remarkable constitutional debate between Justice Thomas and Justice Jackson about the history of colorblindness from the Civil War to the present, the meaning of the efforts to achieve racial equality, and whether or not efforts to help recently freed enslaved uh, men and women uh, should lead to a colorblindness requirement or not. It's well worth reading, and I, I hope you'll do that. Let's turn now to the independent state legislature case. And I, uh, since I'm not objective about this, I'm going to quote from the remarkable tweet and tribute 
from Judge Michael Ludick, uh, who said the following about Neil's victory in that case. And I need my constitutional reading glasses to uh, <laughs> read it. He said it would be impossible to overstate the enormity of yesterday's seminal decision in Moore v. Harper. Not only is it now the single most important constitutional case for American democracy since the nation's founding almost 250 years ago, it is also now one of the most important constitutional cases for representative government in America. Congratulations on that, Neil. And why uh, does Judge Ludic think that this is the most important constitutional case for American democracy since the founding? Well, I think um, for, it was such a privilege to do this case because basically what the Republican Party was saying was that uh, elections would be governed by the raw political power in state legislatures. The state legislatures can do whatever they want. This theory was used, it was the basis of Trump's 2020 <coughs> theories about the elections. You might recall that there were about 62 decisions that were going on in the 2020 election. Many of them were in state courts and John Eastman and Trump's advisors all said these state court decisions are illegitimate. Uh, they considered every, they, they were about everything from, you know, <sighs> Uh, absentee ballots and you know polling hours, all sorts of things, how you count ballots, um, all sorts of things. Um, this case came from North Carolina and it was about gerrymandering. And basically the North Carolina state legislature, North Carolina is a very evenly divided state, has 14 congressional seats. The North Carolina legislature, which is overwhelmingly Republican, gerrymandered it so it was about 10 to four or 11 to three in favor of Republicans. That went to the North Carolina Supreme Court. The North Carolina Supreme Court said, this violates our own state constitution, leading the Republicans to go to the US Supreme Court and say, oh, state courts have no business in federal elections. State constitutions have no business in federal elections. And the reason why I think Judge Ludig is saying that is because he found that, we found that, so contrary to the tradition of checks and balances in this country, going all the way back to the Articles of Confederation, courts have always played a role, and state constitutions have always played a role in uh, governing federal elections. Um, Clark, help us understand the argument of the three uh, dissenters, uh, Judge, uh, Justice Thomas, Justice Gorsuch, and, and, and Justice Alito uh, par partially joined them. And essentially, they said that it all turns on the meaning of the word legislature. And since a legislature, in its ordinary meaning, only means a legislature and not uh, the state courts that review the legislative acts, therefore state courts had no role to play. And, as, and essentially, they said that all of the precedent and history and tradition and practice from the time of the founding until today that um, suggests that state courts were expected to review the acts of legislatures should be ignored because the meaning of the word is clear. Do I have that right? And, and, and try to help us understand their argument. <clears throat> yeah, I think you have it right. Um, I'm trying to pick my words carefully here, but I guess I'll just throw caution to the wind since I'm the libertarian on the panel and I know what's expected of me. Like, I think this is such a stupid question that I'm amazed the Supreme Court had to get involved, right? Like, it's like, if I have to stop this car and like a, a deal with you kids in the back seat, I mean, it's, I think it flows from this ridiculous kind of hypertextualism that we sometimes see. And I'll give you an example. Um, the 16th Amendment says that Congress shall have the power to lay and collect taxes on incomes. And the argument in the North Carolina case strikes me as if somebody said, oh, well, the 16th Amendment says Congress 
shall have the power to lay and collect taxes. So the IRS can't collect taxes, it has to be Congress. That, that's a, that is a preposterous hypertextualism that's, that's I think unhelpful and unworthy. And I, that, to me, I, that's, that's a spirit that animates this dissenting opinion, animates the arguments that were made below in the North Carolina case. Another example, on the other side would be, you know, the Second Amendment says that it, the, people, uh, the right of people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Putting aside the militia clause, are we really going to interpret the word arms to be every single thing that is an arm, including nuclear weapons? No, that's preposterous. Mm. But that would be the kind of hypertextualism that I think is both unhelpful and unworthy um, of, of such, you know, an important document. And it just, I think it, 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 it belittles a document to approach it in that way uh, and to sort of fail to keep perspective that this is first and foremost a frame framework for government, a framework for a particular kind of government, liberal government and rule of law government. And that's the spirit uh, that in my judgment prevailed, that, was, that, that animated Neil's arguments and that prevailed in the Supreme Court. And any other result I think would have made, you know, frankly, a kind of a mockery of, the, of, of, of what is very clearly the spirit of this document. Wow, significant words from, from you, Clark Neely. You are one of the leading Second Amendment <clears throat> defenders in this country. You've won some of the major Second Amendment cases. And to learn that you're not a fan of that uh, hypertextualism, to put it mildly, is notable. Pam, help us understand the significance of this debate. And I should say that the three of us are going to have an advanced credit seminar tomorrow morning about how to interpret the Constitution, where we'll dive into these questions of differences among originalists, textualists, pragmatists, and so forth. But there's a big divide, to put it mildly, between the, uh, let's call them traditional originalists, including uh, Justice Kavanaugh and now Justice Barrett in, in Neil's case, as well as the Chief Justice, um, and Justices Gorsuch and Thomas and Alito. And the hypertextualists, as Clark uh, described them, um, would have denied uh, courts any role to, in, to play in reviewing elections, as well as requiring a degree of colorblindness uh, that's far more extreme than the uh, more traditional originalists. So help us understand the nature of the debate and what are the consequences of this hypertextualism moving forward? Sure. Can I just back up one minute, though, and say a little bit about why, one of the big pieces of significance about Neil's case here, and that is the Supreme Court of the United States took itself out of the business of policing political fairness in gerrymandering cases in the Rucho case a couple of years ago. And so the only place you could go mm. to claim that there was unfairness in the way the state legislature draws congressional districts or draws state legislative districts or the way your city council districts are being drawn is to go to the state courts. And the court said there, go to the state courts. And then to turn around in, uh, and say, but the state courts can't do anything either was deeply problematic. So that's the, the first big thing I think to note here. Second big thing to note is um, what the Supreme Court has done here, and this is, I think, Chief Justice Roberts at his most clever institutionalist in some ways, is he has not taken the US Supreme Court out of the business of policing what state Supreme Courts do. He's left open the question of when has a state court gone beyond traditional uh, judicial review and really started to impose its own notions of fairness. So it'll be really interesting to see how that plays out. Now what you're seeing, I think, in a lot of the cases in front of the Supreme Court, and I think this may be what you're getting at in part, Jeff, is there are justices who are institutionalists and who are thinking about in the long term what's best for the court to kind of retain its power and to retain its central position. And Chief Justice Roberts is 
uh, an example of this. And then there are what um, Leah Littman's referring to as the only live once justices, the YOLO court justices, who are grabbing for as much right now, given how these arguments play out right now. And that's what I think is going on with the independent state legislature doctrine, that as Neil says, it started out as something that was far cleverer than it was wise, far more textual than it was contextual. And as a result, uh, it looked like something that would be good for one side in the political debates now. And I think that's what drove the justices to that position. I would have been very surprised if they had adopted the kind of independent state legislature doctrine in the way they did in a case where it was going to advantage the Democrats tremendously. I would have been very surprised. Great. Well, that's a helpful distinction between the institutionalists and the YOLA justices. And let me ask you how that plays out in the third big case Good, that we're going to- Jeff, before we get to yeah, the yeah, third sure. case, uh, there's one thing I'd like to say more about this case, because I think it connects to the themes of the ideas uh, uh, seminar and indeed the first session, which was about listening to one another. So. Um, an interesting th thing happened in this case. After I argued it, uh, the North Carolina Supreme Court, where this case was from, changed its mind on some of the key questions. And there were five parties on my side versus the Republican Party. And the five were a bunch of very liberal groups, um, as well as the Biden administration, the Solicitor General. And when that decision by the North Carolina court was made, these folks all went to the United States Supreme Court and said, get rid of this case, get rid of Moore versus Harper. Uh, it's moot now because the North Carolina court has changed its opinion. Um, and they thought they were gonna lose. And we looked at it and I have such a diverse team of people uh, on my staff and my method is always to really try and take what the United States Supreme Court says seriously. We live in a kind of soundbite caricature age and I looked at it, I thought about it and I said, I think we're gonna win the case and I think that these people are having a knee-jerk reflexive reaction to what the US Supreme Court is, is, is about. And so we stood alone, we told the Supreme Court, don't get rid of this case decide the case on the merits, um, and we won. And that to me is a illustration of what this week is all about. It's about trying to take each other seriously and listen. And of course they're open to all sorts of criticism and I give it to them too. But sometimes there's still a space for good results even when we are opposed to one another. That, that's such, bravo, absolutely. It's a hugely important point. And the fact that you persuaded the court to take the institutional view in briefings after the case had been argued is part of this remarkable victory. And it's why Judge Ludig uh, paid you in the case the tribute that he did. Well, the theme of institutionalism is raised by our, our third case, which is the Alabama voting rights case, the Milligan case. This is one where Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kavanaugh joined the liberal justices in uh, uh, refusing to strike down section two of the Voting Rights Act, which requires uh, legislatures to be race conscious in when there's been evidence of racially polarized voting and in the process to preserve the, one of the last uh, parts of the Voting Rights Act that remains available. Pam, you're 
America's voting rights expert. It's a complicated case, but help us understand it and why it once again reaffirms Chief Justice Roberts' institutionalism. Sure. So again, a disclaimer, I worked on the case of the Department of Justice. Um, so when President Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act into law in 1965, he said it was the toughest civil rights statute America had ever uh, had ever uh, enacted. And in 1982, the statute was amended to say that states could not use voting practices or procedures that resulted in minority voters having less of an opportunity to participate and to elect candidates of their choice than other voters. So it's a statute not just about the right to participate in elections, but about the ability to elect candidates of your choice. Uh, and in large parts of the country, uh, the only way for minority voters to elect candidates of their choice is to have them be a majority of the electorate because voting is racially polarized in those parts of the country. It's not true everywhere in the United States. It's gone down over time in much of the United States, but there are still places where racial polarization is real and it determines the outcome of elections. Uh, in the 1990s, Alabama was forced to draw one majority black congressional district. It has seven congressional districts. And it was forced to draw one by the Voting Rights Act. And that district has been redrawn and redrawn and perpetuated from the 1990s to the 2000s to the 2010 to 2020. And in, 2000, and in 2020, Alabama redrew its districts again, creating one majority black district and six majority white districts. And a variety of different groups brought suit in Alabama saying it was possible to draw a second majority black congressional district uh, and that the level of racial polarization in Alabama remains high and that uh, otherwise black voters in Alabama wouldn't have an equal opportunity to participate and to elect. It, this was a classic case under a 1986 Supreme Court decision called Thornburg against Jingles, which coincidentally was decided the year I was clerking. So my whole life as a voting rights lawyer has been in the jingles regime. Um, the, a three-judge district court in Alabama heard evidence in the case. There was a preliminary injunction trial, several weeks of evidence, uh, and said that, Al that, that the Alabama plan likely violated the Voting Rights Act by failing to draw this second majority black district. Um, the three judges who decided the case decided the case under the Jingles test, which the Supreme Court has used since 1986 and has been used around the country. And this was really a cookie cutter case. There was nothing interesting about the case at all, except for one thing. And we've been talking a lot this week about technology. And it was technology that was the interesting thing, which is scientists now have supercomputers that can run hundreds of thousands of simulated elections. They can redraw the districts millions of times uh, and see what the result of the, elect uh, of the redrawing the districts would be. And it turned out that there were some political scientists who had run, I think, 100,000 uh, simulated maps of Alabama, and they never produced two majority black districts unless they took race into account. And so Alabama said, see, we have a colorblind constitution. You'd have to take race into account too much in order to draw two districts. Therefore, abandon the jingles test. The case went up to the Supreme Court on the shadow docket, which I think we may talk about a little bit later, and the Supreme Court stayed the order of the three-judge district court in Alabama so that the election in 2022 went forward under the six white district, one black district, one majority black district plan, elected six Republicans and one Democrat. Um, at the time, the Chief Justice 
dissented from the granting of the stay by saying, I think the Jingles case you know, decides how this case should come out, but I'm not sure Jingles is right. I think we need to rethink Jingles a little. And so then the Supreme Court heard oral argument, and ultimately the Supreme Court came back and said, no, we're, we're sticking with the Jingles test. This is a case that meets all of the factors under Jingles, and therefore we are sending the case back for more proceedings, and the proceedings are gonna be a remedy that will presumably draw two districts from which black voters in Alabama can elect candidates of their choice. Uh, beautifully explained, and, and it just shows how incredibly significant the case is, and by some accounts it will result in the election of from three to five more Democratic seats in the next uh, House elections, uh, because this Jingles test, which Pam described, which just to review, because it's complicated, um, requires legislatures to draw districts that where, majority, where minorities constitute a majority in cases where there's a history of racially polarized block voting and the minority communities are geographically compact and contiguous. That test remains alive. If the other side had won, then there wouldn't be a requirement to create those districts, making it harder for Congress to require that minorities have an equal opportunity to elect representatives of their choice, as they said in passing amendments to the Voting Rights Act of 1982. Clark, just to bring this back to a, a version of the colorblindness debate, Justice Thomas, in his uh, dissenting opinion in Milligan, said essentially the Constitution is colorblind and therefore the voting rights amendments violate the Constitution. Congress wasn't allowed to say in 1982 that legislatures have to take race into account to give minorities an opportunity to elect representatives of their choice. Um, and therefore he would have uh, made it uh, impossible for that to happen. Do I have that right? Um, explain the consequences of Justice Thomas's strong colorblindness view and do you think Justice Thomas was right or wrong? <laughs> Let me start by saying that I have as much trepidation about talking about voting rights in front of Pam Carlin as I would about pop music in front of Taylor Swift. I, huh. A bit preposterous, huh. but if you insist, I will say, I, I think you have the characterization right, and I think that the, the, the fundamental problem with Justice Thomas's perspective is that it's built on an ipsedixit, um, which is, in essence, it's an unfounded assertion um, that the Constitution is, in fact, colorblind. Um, I'm a hardcore libertarian, and I, you know, I take equal protection very seriously, as I know we all do. Reasonable people can differ about what that means, but I don't think that, that it incorporates an absolute requirement of colorblindness, and I think we can think of a number of settings in which that would be extraordinarily problematic. Pam and I were talking about one earlier, um, which is uh, some prisons are heavily uh, self-segregated along racial lines. There's a whole interesting kind of anthropology about why prison gangs tend to be, um, not tend to be, they're almost uh, exclusively uh, based on race. And the idea that a prison could never take into account um, the, the fact that if you uh, mix some of these prison gangs together, you will have a riot, uh, I think is preposterous. I'm not saying that Justice Thomas would take a different view. In fact, he's written a dissent in which he doesn't embrace that view. Uh, but that seems to undercut, to me at least, undercut his, his uh, categorical assertion that the Constitution is colorblind. So if we reject that, which I do, then we have to have a more thoughtful discussion about to what extent may the government take into consideration uh, racial uh, ethnicity, and to what extent is the government's own uh, history of, of complicity 
in, in disfavoring, and disfavoring, look, that's, you know, that's a euphemism, in, you know, supporting a system of, of, of chattel slavery, of enslaving human beings, um, uh, and, and then propping up a system of, uh, of, of racial apartheid in the wake of the Civil War, um, the idea that that's not relevant, I think, is also preposterous, and Justice Jackson makes that point in her dissent um, in the, um, the Harvard and UNC cases today. So I think two things are true. I, I think it's quite clear that the Constitution is not literally colorblind, um, but then at the same time, that doesn't it's not a carte blanche. That doesn't mean that the government can just do anything it wants when it comes to race. It's a much more nuanced and a much more challenging opinion. And for nuance and, and intellectual, you know, analytical uh, virtuosity, I would defer to Pam. Great. Well, well, Neil, help us understand this debate between Justice Thomas and Justice Jackson about whether or not the Constitution is colorblind, uh, which plays out in, in both of these cases. And then what's the significance of Chief Justice Roberts' decision to join the liberals in this voting rights case and the conservatives in the affirmative action case, uh, does he think the Constitution is always colorblind or not? So uh, the Alabama case, just the same disclaimer, that's my team's case, so um, speaking personally um, and the like. Um, I think that Justice, I think Justice Thomas, like today, it's quite remarkable. He says, for example, the Freedmen's Bureau is race neutral. <laughs> um, I, I've read a lot about the Freedmen's Bureau. Nobody I've ever heard of it describe it as race neutral. It was set up after the Civil War to, uh, to basically protect the freed people, the, the, the former slaves. Um, the whole point was it was race conscious. And so there is a race consciousness that was built into the foundations of the 14th Amendment in the 1860s. Of course, Congress was thinking about doing special things for them. We had to. We had an obligation after they had been enslaved for so long. Um, but yet, you know, Justice Thomas is caught between his embrace of history as his method and the fact that history here totally looks the other way. Uh, it totally goes the other way. I mean, I was struck, I think Justice Jackson has had a remarkable first term, unlike any other justice um, in my lifetime at least. Um, and I, as I say, I've been involved in every one of these affirmative action cases for 25 years. I've never heard the point that Justice Jackson made in the affirmative action arguments. She said to the challengers, she said, um, okay, uh, can I write this essay? Um, I'm applying to the UNC. Um, I'm a fifth generation North Carolinian. My father went to UNC. My grandfather went to UNC. His father went to UNC. It's really important that I go to UNC. Answer from the challenger, yes. Okay, now can I write this essay? Um, I'm a fifth generation North Carolinian. My great grandfather couldn't go to UNC because he was enslaved. My grandfather couldn't go because of Jim Crow. And my father faced the lingering effects of that as well can I write that essay? And there wasn't a very strong answer to that, which is why I think you see the Chief Justice bracket that. But someone like Justice Thomas isn't bracketing that. Justice Thomas is saying, nope, race neutrality, race neutrality, race neutrality, wanting to get rid of a lot of the texture and history of this country's relationship to race. And, and I don't think we can talk about the Alabama case without understanding that this Supreme Court has had a concerted attack on minority voting. And most recent, most you know, powerfully 10 years ago this week in the Shelby County case, striking down a different provision of the Voting Rights Act than the one Pam was talking about, sections four and five, which said, was kind of the heart of the act, which said basically, you know, when a, 
jurisdiction that has a history of race discrimination wants to change its voting rules, it's had to have preclearance from either a judge or from officials in Washington, D.C. And, and the Chief Justice, in an opinion 10 years ago that I think is one of his gravest mistakes, said that that was unconstitutional, that it treated uh, states differently and violated what he called the equal footing doctrine and joined by all the conservatives on the court. With the equal footing doctrine is a really interesting doctrine because for someone who claims to be a textualist, as these folks do, there is no equal footing doctrine in the Constitution. You can look up, down, and sideways. It isn't there. But it's a made-up doctrine used to basically eliminate this key provision in the Voting Rights um, Act. And it really does show how far we've gone. I mean, my 46 arguments ago, I guess in 2009, I argued the predecessor case, Northwest Austin um, versus Holder, in which the court eight to one upheld that same provision of the Voting Rights Act. And just four years later, they strike it down. Um, and so I am very worried about the court on voting. The Alabama case was an extreme case. Those three judges that, that uh, Pam Carlin was talking about, two of them were Trump appointees, and yet they found the same problems that Pam identified. It was an easy case. I'm worried about the next one. Can, can I just add one thing here, which is about the history? Um, and it, it is that if you look at what the 14th Amendment says, everybody, a lot of people stop after reading section one of the 14th Amendment, <laughs> which is the Equal Protection Clause and the Due Process Clause, and they never get to section five of the 14th Amendment, which was the section that says Congress shall enforce the provisions of, the, of this article. And the reason that provision is there is because the Congress that proposed the 14th Amendment and the people who ratified the 14th Amendment did not trust the Supreme Court to, to protect the rights of black people because their experience with the Supreme Court and black people was Dred Scott. And the Voting Rights Act is one of the signature examples of Congress using its Section 5 powers to say, here's how we understand uh, equality to be. And this was not a partisan issue. It was not a partisan issue in 1965. Every one of the extensions and amendments and strengthenings of the Voting Rights Act was signed into law by a Republican president. Uh, in the case Neil was talking about, the Northwest Austin case, and then in the Shelby County case, I had the privilege to represent the bipartisan leadership of the House of Representatives in support of the act. And so, you know, politics didn't used to have the kind of racial connotations in the late 20th century that it now seems to be having again, and that's a real problem. And in fact, in the argument to Northwest Austin, um, the, the Justice Scalia asked my co-counsel, this act was authorized in 2006 and it was voted for unanimously in the United States Senate, 98 to zero. And he says, that must have been symbolic. Nothing important passes 98 to zero. And I'm sitting there in the chair looking at him and I was like, if I were up there, I could drop the mic and be done with my life as a Supreme Court lawyer because I would say, Mr. Justice Scalia, your confirmation vote was 98 to zero. Um, this is a, it, it's a crucial uh, debate that we're having, which we're gonna continue tomorrow, but I think Neil uh, helpfully uh, you know, puts his finger on it when you say that Justice Thomas is caught between the text and history, and as I understand his argument in both the affirmative action and the voting rights cases, he's saying because the text is clear, 
because the text obviously requires colorblindness, we don't have to look at the messy history, which suggests that in the years before and after the 14th Amendment, there was race consciousness. And it's a version of the argument that he made in, in the independent state legislature case, because the word legislature is clear, we just don't have to look at all the history, which suggests that uh, no one ever expected to exclude state courts. Um, so, uh, you know, of course, the question of whether the text is clear is the central question in all these cases, and, and people are, are fighting wars and, and uh, filing a lot of briefs contesting the idea that the text is clear. But at least as I understand it at this, that point, that's the, the difference between the two camps. Well, let's uh, use our remaining time. We'll probably have uh, at least one last intervention. Um, Clark, you are the leading Second Amendment uh, litigator uh, among them in the country. And uh, there's a case on the horizon called Rahini involving domestic violence in the Second Amendment. It comes on the heels of this very significant case called Bruin, where the court just recently struck down New York's concealed carry laws and required a text and history test where you have to find a historical analog for gun control regulation to support it. Justice Breyer said this means that there's now a cottage industry and Second Amendment historians seeing whether or not assault weapons you know, are consistent with the statute of Northumberland of 1393. But tell us about the state of play of the Second Amendment and why Rahini may create further clarity or confusion. Yeah, thanks. So I, um, I think two things are true. I think that the Supreme Court um, correctly decided the last Second Amendment case that came before it, which challenged uh, New York uh, State's system of deciding who gets to carry a, a concealed weapon. Um, and they had, they're one of the few states that had what's called a discretionary permitting system. Um, so you had to meet certain objective criterion, but then you also had to go and convince some local bureaucrat that you had a special need uh, to, to carry a gun. There's no other constitutional right that we only get to exercise if we convince some, do you really need to have that parade? What are people gonna say? Do they really need to hear that? We don't do that in any other area, and the Supreme Court, not surprisingly, said that New York can't do that with respect to deciding who gets to carry a gun outside the home. The, the reasoning, uh, I think, was quite concerning, because what the court did, I don't want to get too deep down in the weeds, but normally what the court does is it applies a kind of a balancing test. So to go back to a parade permit, for example, can you require somebody to get a parade permit? Yes. Um, but can you charge them $10,000 for it if there's no connection between that and how much it will cost to provide security? No, you cannot. That's the kind of balancing that I'm talking about. That's what the court normally does in most cases where you've got this kind of a righted issue where there are real concerns on both sides, like who's carrying a gun outside the house. What the Supreme Court did in this most recent case called Bruin was it just threw all that out and said, what we'll do is we'll look back at history, um, and they're not even sure what the relevant time frame is, by the way. It could be 1791 when the Second Amendment was added to the Constitution, or it could be 1868 when the 14th Amendment was added. Who knows? Um, but whatever the time is, we'll look back and we'll see how they were doing things back then. And uh, if you know uh, the, 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 the thing that's being challenged today was not a feature of the regulatory landscape back then, and there's no reasonably analogous uh, regulatory scheme back then, you just don't get to do it. I am really flummoxed by this approach. I, I, I think for so many reasons, it's, I think it's um, pragmatically really difficult. Um, I think just even sort of jurisprudentially, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. Like, why would we look back at a time, um, you know, when people were carrying muskets and like shooting wild turkeys, you know, uh, like literally on the way to work, because 
everybody lived in the country. Um, not everybody, but you know, it's, it was a different time. Um, and of course, there were no high-capacity weapons back then with, with uh, ammunition that would shoot through three walls. I just, uh, you know, and I am a Second Amendment guy, as you know, I, I think some of you know. Um, but um, but it, it just doesn't really make sense to me. So I don't, I don't really get this, this new approach. I also think that a lot, in, in fact, maybe even most of constitutional adjudication ultimately boils down to line drawing. And just to give you an example, how old should you have to be to own a gun? There's nothing in the Constitution about that. Um, I got a nine-year-old son, eight-year-old daughter. I don't think they're old enough. Uh, on the other hand, you're eligible to serve in the armed forces when you're 17 years old, and you'll be given a firearm and told to go kill people with it. But then to say to you, oh, but if you're a civilian, no, ah, it's tough. It's a line drawing challenge, and it is a challenge. I just don't see how this, what, what we now call the text history and tradition approach that was announced in this Bruin case helps us do that. It, 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 in fact, I think it not only doesn't help, but I think it actually clouds the issue and, and is likely to lead the court into more errors um, than not. And the last thing I'll say about it is this. Um, there's, there's an astonishing footnote in the majority opinion in Bruin that's also picked up on by Justice Kavanaugh in a concurrence that says, in effect, oh, uh, nothing in the opinion today should cast into doubt the legitimacy of states requiring a license to carry a gun outside the home. Guess what? There was no licensing requirement either at the founding or in 1868. So everything in those opinions calls into question uh, this, this uh, requirement that, that half the states now have uh, to get a license before you carry a gun. And to just blithely assert that, that this new text history and tradition uh, approach doesn't uh, uh, call into question the, the government licensing of who can carry a gun I just is absolutely mystifying to me and I think, frankly, uh, a bit disingenuous. Can I say something about the, what the case that's likely to go to the Supreme Court is about? Because it's important for people to realize it. This do you is, have to? I do. <laughs> okay. I gotta. I gotta. <laughs> this is a case that involves a man who was subject to a domestic violence restraining order after he um, threatened his partner with a weapon. Uh, and now he challenges, and he was then convicted for carrying a gun after the restraining order was uh, issued against him. And his position, which succeeded in front of the Federal Court of Appeals, was essentially there were no laws like this in 1868. But do understand that in 1868, domestic violence wasn't a crime, marital rape wasn't a crime. So to say we should look back to those times to figure out whether carrying a weapon today after you've threatened your domestic partner with a weapon is a core constitutional right, takes things very far. And the other thing I'll just say about this is one of the things about Supreme Court opinions is um, justices often join on to stuff that they're not going to stick with the next time around. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how many of the justices who joined the opinion in Bruin peel off when it comes to felons in possession or domestic violence restraining order folks in possession. We have time for, uh, Neil, uh, you're, you're going to have the last word, but uh, tell our friends what uh, they should expect moving forward. Uh, this turned out not to be a simple six to three court in every case. We did see Chief Justice Roberts uh, as an institutionalist. How will that play out for the future and what should we think about the future of the Supreme Court? Well, the most remarkable thing about this panel is that we've gone an hour and haven't mentioned the word abortion. Um, and that looms over the court. It haunts the court, I suspect will continue to haunt the court in all sorts of very serious ways. What happened in Dobbs last year, I think was a travesty. Um, and I think very hard to justify 
um, from even the court's own premises. And if they can overrule Roe versus Wade, a super precedent like that, then nothing is safe. And that's, I take it, what Pam was saying. So I think this year the court looks very different than it did last year in terms of just the composition of its decisions. Like if you were to ask last year which justices were in the majority the most, it was Chief Justice, the Chief Justice and Justice Kavanaugh, 95% of the time in the majority. This time, just I only have the data for the first 40 cases decided of the 60, um, having compiled the rest but of those first 40, Justice Sotomayor was the justice in the majority the most, and it was Alito and Thomas who were in dissent the most. So this is looking like a different term. The question is, will that continue? Um, and, you know, some of those cases are important, um, but abortion will continue to define what the court's about. So as you look to the next year, you look to uh, the Mifa Pristone case, that's also my team's case, which in which uh, basically a conservative organization shopped for a certain lawsuit in a certain jurisdiction, drew a judge who basically invalidated this abortion drug, which had been around and approved since 2000. And the theory by which the court, the judge allowed that to happen is said, well, doctors have legal standing because their patients might take the drug and have some adverse side effect. Um, you know, if that's true, every doctor, my wife's one, is going to have standing for every possible drug because they all have side effects. It's an insane, insane theory. It went up to the United States Supreme Court on this, what we call the shadow docket, not an argument, just an accelerated, uh, accelerated pace to say, should there be an immediate temporary injunction or preliminary injunction? And the court there, the Supreme Court fortunately did the right thing, let the drug continue. But that case is now going to work through the Court of Appeals and come to the United States Supreme Court the next year, um, and there will be other abortion cases as well, and I think that will be the haunting uh, issue of our time. Well, thank you for that, and most of all, uh, friends, as you've listened to this remarkably illuminating panel, you have a sense of the need for each of you to read the opinions. You cannot make an informed judgment about whether you agree or disagree with the court unless you take the time to read the majority opinion, read the concurrences, and read the dissents. These opinions are written for you, and if you uh, accept my assignment and pick one of the decisions that we've been talking about, affirmative action, the independent state legislature, voting rights, and read it through, you'll see it's not just written for lawyers, they're written for ordinary citizens, and they allow you to make up your own minds. Most of all, I want to thank my panelists for having educated all of us and provided a model for civil discourse about the U.S. Constitution. Neil Cotial is the Paul and Patricia Saunders Professor of Law at Georgetown University and a partner at Hogan Lovell's law firm. He was previously U.S. Acting Solicitor General, and he has argued 48 cases before the U.S. Supreme Court. Pam Carlin is the Kenneth and Harley Montgomery Professor of Public Interest Law at Stanford Law School. She also co-directs the Supreme Court Litigation Clinic at Stanford. Her scholarship focuses on constitutional litigation. Clark Neely is a Senior Vice President for Legal Studies at the Cato Institute. He's also an adjunct professor at University of Texas School of Law. Jeffrey Rosen is the President and CEO of the National Constitution Center and a professor at George Washington University Law School. He's also a contributing editor at The Atlantic. Today's show was programmed by the Aspen Ideas Festival team and produced by Natalie Jones and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening. Thank you.